8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We have been working through the book of 2 Corinthians um, for a number of months now, and we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15 today. One of the um, benefits and challenges of preaching through a book is that you just preach the topics that come up in the book. Um, you just, whatever comes up in that next section is what we, is the topic that we are discussing. So that the, the benefit and the challenge of that, and so this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, is about the grace of of giving, the grace of giving, but it's the grace of giving, not talking in this passage about your weekly offering specifically. It's the grace of giving as a model of Jesus giving in the context of our resources and generosity, but it is about our giving and our resources. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15 says this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need." that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let's pray. Holy Father, Lord, again, thanks for your word. Lord, thanks for the ability to freely gather at the beginning of a week as a church. Lord, we are all filled with much that could distract us, the Holy Spirit, I pray that your word would speak to us. The Holy Spirit, you would use it. You would help us to become a church even more that is known for its generosity and its grace in giving. Lord, thanks for the truth of your word. I pray you just drive it gently and strongly and helpfully into our lives. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
This is graduation season. Ryan Aldrich graduated from college uh, last week. Um, Lexi, uh, Lexi Collins graduated from college yesterday in Indiana. Uh, um, Trinity had her open house and graduated this afternoon. Caleb Gomes is graduating from Sandwich, and so there's all and there's others others graduating that we know of. This is graduation season, and in these seasons of graduation, there's going to be all kinds of speeches, all kinds of announcements, all kinds of challenges to these graduates, and they're going to tell them. Many of them are going to say, "Leave this campus, go out into the world, climb the mountain, do everything you can, get to the top of your mountain, and just roar. Let the world know that you are here. Let them change the world. Be get where you want to go." The question, even from this text, is which mountain are you? climbing? And which mountain will you climb if you're a graduate or if you are graduated 35 years ago? The question still remains, how, how do you climb those mountains? And the way we would know what mountain we're climbing is how you see the world, what your worldview is, how you, how you wake up and see things, what, what's your vision of the world. There is two different mountains that we can climb on in, in the world. There's a, there's a mountain that says just climb and roar and grab whatever you can. And then there is a gospel view of the world, a Christian world view. And Paul Tripp, speaking of this, gave four points that I think were excellent on what is a Christian world view? How does a Christian see the mountains that he should climb? And, and he gave four of them. This is the basis I, I, of, of what a Christian, how a Christian should view the world in a gospel way. First, at the center of the universe is a God of incalculable glory. That's our first view of God if you're a Christian. At the center of the universe is a God of incalculable glory. Life is first about God. Much as many people will hear this weekend and last weekend and coming weekends, you know, go out there and make life happen. For the Christian, at the center of the universe is God. Second, we live in a world that's terribly broken by sin. This is, we, we, we live in a broken world. We, we suffer from it. We experience it when it comes to our finances and resources. We are told on a regular basis that money is the Savior that you need and can fix all your problems, and it would be a Savior for you. But we know that that's not rea- a reality because our view is God's the center. We live in a terribly broken world. Number three, God offers us his heart and life-transforming grace. Jesus Christ changes people's lives. He transforms lives. He offers new beginnings. He helps people start climbing a different mountain. And number four, we were created to live for something bigger than ourselves. That's a Christian foundation for a worldview. Is that how you view the world? Is that your view? That God's the center We live in a broken world. God offers us a heart that's life-transforming, and we were created to live for something bigger than ourselves. There's these two mountains that you could climb with everything. David Brooks, on a book that he wrote called Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life, 
he's describing that there's, he, he said that there was a, two ways of, two mountains that people can view life, and he said this is about the first mountain, the one that most people uh, are looking for when they get out of school or start a career or start their family. He says, people climbing that first mountain spend a lot of time thinking about reputation management. They are always keeping score. How do I measure up? Where do I rank? The goals of that first mountain are the normal goals that our culture endorses. To be a success, to be well thought of, to get invited into the right social circles, and to experience personal happiness. It's all the normal stuff that the culture endorses. A nice home, nice family, nice vacations, good food, good friends, good bank accounts, and so on. That's the first mountain that many people start to climb on, and then they get to a point where they will say, there's got to be something more than this. There's got to be more to this. I collected a lot of the stuff up this mountain, and there's got to be more to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is Jesus' answer and Jesus' model of the second mountain that Christians are supposed to be climbing on. It's a model of Jesus that he calls us to when it comes to money and resources. The question is, what, what, what mountaintop will your life roar on? Because the roar of your life is revealed by your use of the resources that you receive and what you do with them. That's what tells really the story of your life. No matter how much we talk, it's, it's what we, we show with our resources, what comes in and what, what goes out. And 2 Corinthians 8 is a ch- challenge by Jesus to model what is the second mountain. That, that there's a model, there's a way to live life, to gather and collect so you can roar how great you are. Or there's a different way to go. In 2 Corinthians 8, this church... Paul's been working with this church at Corinth. They've struggled. They've had conflict. He wrote to them. They repented. And now the second half of the letter is him writing to this church who say, we repented. We're with you now, Paul. We, we, we agree that this is what we want to go for. This is the gospel. And so he challenges them, and he says, hey, I know you repented. I know you went back. I know, I know we're back on track with where we should be. Now I want you to go back and do what you said you wanted to do a year ago. Because at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, it talks about this collection of for the saints in Jerusalem. There had been a great famine or great persecution, great struggle. This church had lack of resources, lack of funds. There was, there was no um, payment protection plan. There was no uh, social services. Nobody was coming to their aid. And so the church around the area said, hey, we'll come to your aid, and they started taking a collection. The church at Corinth started taking that collection. Then sin came in, and they stopped doing it. And Paul said, listen, now that you've repented, now that we're back, I want you to start it up again. And the way he encourages them to do it is he starts out with this example of the Macedonian churches, which is in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, three churches that you know. First Thessalonians was written to the one, Philippians, and then the church of Berea, where they really studied the scriptures. But he gives this example to them, this Macedonian example to say, here, this is, this is what you, this is what I want you to know, brothers. I want you to see what other saints, what the other churches have been, have been doing, not to make these guys look bad, but to encourage them. So he gives them this 
example, and he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia that they, they, that they, that they gave. And it says they gave abundantly. But the question is, it's a beautiful picture, but why did they give? What was it that motivated these churches, this group of people, to give? It says, I want you to know not how great they are, he says. I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches. It, it, this was something they, they gave because it was God's grace that was given to them. It, they were transformed people. They accepted the gospel. They, they came to know Christ, and then they, they recognized that their lives were transformed. These were ordinary people. This was an ordinary church. These were more than just ordinary people. These were ordinary people going through extraordinary problems. It says, in their severe test of affliction, th- these people wanted to give. So when you think of giving your resources, you have to think, well, if I, if, when I really get to that level of great spirituality, that's when I'll have the joy of freely being able to give, or a certain level of status. Now, these were just ordinary suffering saints in this, in, in this church. John Calvin said, God looks at nothing but our miseries when he calls us to himself. He does not consider whether we seek him or not. He does not consider whether we are able to do him any service or not. Our miseries incline God to show us mercy. In this church of people suffering through persecution, through deep poverty, they, they gave because God gave them the grace to, gave, to give. It, it was a God-driven thing that motivated to them. But then it says, they gave, he goes, but notice when they gave. For a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on our part. They gave out of severe tests of affliction. These people were Poor. The word that they use for poor here was like bottom of the barrel, poor. I mean, they, they, they could not, they had nothing, basically. And he says, this is when they gave. When they were under severe stress or persecution, it could have been the famine, it could have been church persecution, they could have been being ostracized, and then they had nothing. Just that they're out of, out of bottom of the barrel poverty, they gave with great joy and with generosity, out of the severe test of affliction. A number of people have said, and I, many of times they're joking, hey, Paul, when it, when it comes around, things are going to go well at work. My job's going to go well. Look out. When, when it comes out, I'm writing that church. I'm going to write that check, you know? Uh, and and we, they mean it well. But that's not how they gave in this situation. They weren't waiting. They were in a severe test of affliction. They needed things, but in, in that case, severe test of affliction, in their deep poverty, they gave with overflowing generosity, with abundance of joy. And they gave with unbelievable generosity, it says. For, for, it says, for they, for they gave according to their means and beyond their means. And Paul was not, he, he was almost like, don't do it. I see how much struggling you are. But, but they wouldn't have any of it. They were like, no, we want to give. Don't take our blessing away from us. We want to do this. They gave with a wealth 
of generosity. They gave unbelievably willingly and, and they gave worshipfully because it says in verse five, and this, he says, not as we expected. We weren't demanding this of them. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. If you think that if you give to God, God's going to then bless you. Don't give. That's not how it works. They gave themselves first to God, and then God used them. They gave worshipfully. Money, and even giving away money, does not fix mess. Just ask Bill Gates right now. Tons of money has given tons of money away and mess. Money doesn't fix it. Giving away doesn't fix it. But the grace of God comes into mess and does amazing things. And these people were absolutely transformed by the grace of God, even in the mess of their lives. And because of that, they, they gave to them, themselves to the Lord first. This was the example that Paul which does give us some biblical principles when about our, our, our giving. And, and they say they, they gave generously. This is, this is how the gospel, these Christians gave. Even in the midst of their lack, they gave generously and they gave proportionately. Paul didn't come in and say, hey, this is what we need. You all have to give this amount. They, they gave proportionally to what they had and then they gave purposely and they gave sacrificially. Is that how you view your resources when it comes to giving back to, to what God has called you to do? Are you, are you giving generously, proportionately, purposefully, sacrificially? This is how they gave. This was the example that Paul says, look at these other churches. Look at how they gave. This church at Corinth had fallen away. They struggled, and he was calling them back, and he used it as a way to encourage them. And, and they, were, they weren't encouraged by that. But they needed something else to drive their generosity. That's all good. We could say, well, good for them. Great church in Berea. I'm, I'm thrilled for them. Happy story. Uh, good stuff. Um, I probably couldn't do it, but I'm glad that they could do it. I like my uh, coffee, and I'm not going to give up my, that's the only thing I can afford. But they, some of those did it. We, we might say that. So Paul gives them an extra motivation. He gave them the, Medi- the, the Macedonian example, And then he said, this is what is to drive generosity. What drives that kind of generosity? What compels people who are at the bottom of the barrel in poverty to hear the needs of others in Christ who are struggling and say, I'll give to that. I'll sacrifice more. I'll even be more purposeful. I'll do it to the best of my ability. What drives that kind of generosity? That kind of grace giving. Paul gives them the motivation. It's the motivation of Jesus. In verse 9, where he says, For you know, again, he want, he, they, they know these things. He wanted them to know about Macedonia, and he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
This is the greatest motivation. Look what Jesus did for us. The motivation of Jesus who was rich spiritually. I mean, Jesus in his humanity, he, he, he was just a carpenter's son. Doesn't necessarily mean he was complete poverty, but he didn't have much. The Bible says Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't collect things. Isaiah 53 said there was nothing about Jesus and his humanity that you would look at him and say, yeah, that's the Son of God. He's just your ordinary, everyday, average Jewish man. But he was Lord. For the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up his riches to take on poverty, his riches of heaven, his riches of his God status. He gave it up. The supremacy of God, when we think about how much Jesus gave up for us, should motivate us to become more generous. When you think of all the supremacy that Jesus had in his richness, he was absolutely rich in his deity, who he was as God. He was absolutely rich in his knowledge. He was absolutely rich in his wisdom, in his providence, in his power, in his justice, in his purity, in his gladness, in his patience, in his trustworthiness, in his authority. Jesus was absolutely rich in all that. He, he was Lord and supreme and still is, and he willingly gave gave it up. There's an iceberg that I heard just broke off, a, a largest iceberg that they know of right now just broke off in Antarctica. It's half the size of Puerto Rico. There's this massive iceberg floating half the size of Puerto Rico, not a human being living on it. And God reigns over that. He's supreme over that. that that's huge. And then imagine how huge God is in his supremacy and everything that Jesus had, yet he gave it up to become poor for us, to become our Savior, to take on the form of a servant, to humble himself, and to die the death of a cross. One early church leader said, Christ was made poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. He took the form of a servant that we might regain liberty. He descended that we might be exalted. He was tempted that we might overcome. He was despised that he might fill us with glory. He died that we might be saved. He ascended to draw us to himself, those who are lying prostrate on the ground through sin's stumbling block. The, the, the richest, greatest, the ultimate authority gave it all up so he could come down to people who were in the mess, stumbled on their face, a disaster. He didn't look over you. He didn't look over me. He didn't pass you up. He could have with his supreme greatness. A number of years ago, one of our boys, he, they went out for track and he did hurdles. And he was getting better at them and he was getting better at them. We were watching one of his last track meets. And he takes off running. Makes it past the first one. Makes it past the second one. He'd knocked a few over up to this point. So this was big news. So he's going all the way as fast as he can. He's, 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 got, he's, in the, he's in the beginning of it. He's not last. We're screaming. We're yelling. He hits, gets the last hurdle and trips, knocks it over, falls flat on his face. He gets back up, and he finishes. I was proud of him. But what Jesus did for us is greater than that. We hit the hurdle, splanted right flat on our face, and we wouldn't get up and couldn't get up 
on our own. But Jesus came down, left heaven, left the riches, entered into our world, got on the track, lifted us up, and carried us all the way home. He'll never leave us. This is the motivation for giving. If Jesus, the God of the universe, has done that for you and you know it, what is it that you're still going to be willing to hold on to? What is it you're going to say, that's mine, and you can't have it? So the call is to a steady climbing in our faith. He says in verse 11, so now finish doing it as well. It's the message of our earnings. I mean, what's going to be the measure of your faith? What's the mountain you're going to climb on? I would just encourage us as individuals in this church, make money a means to encourage others. Make it a means to be generous and to find ways to encourage others with it so the kingdom of God can advance around the world. Money matters. It absolutely matters. But it doesn't matter as much as Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. This is Jesus. No one can serve two masters. For he, either, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money does not mean that you cannot make a lot of money in this life if God's blessed you. Make it if you can. But what it means is you can, as a Christian, not be in love with that so much money so much that you can love that and love Jesus the same. It's, he says you can't love God and money. Money matters, but mercy also matters. That's why it says in Galatians 6, serve those, especially to those in the household of faith. What's the measure of your earnings? What's your generosity? What's your grace in giving? There's an old hymn called Take My Life and Let It Be. And there was the speaker who was at a conference, and it was a college-age conference, big conference, thousands of college kids, all-Christian conference, and he was the speaker at it, and he, he, he spoke in that morning, and at night they came back for this worship time, and they were singing this, take my life and let it be. And as they would sing it, um, the, the, the worship guy said, as we sing it, every time we say one of the things, if, you, if this is true for you, let's shout it out, let's, let's praise God. And so they would go through the lines, take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. And they would just scream, yeah, that's what we want. And then they would come to the next line, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy, thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. And they would just scream, yeah, and cheer. Take my voice and let me sing. Take my lips and let them be. Fill with messages from thee. Yes, they would cheer. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. And it dropped. They took it serious. The question is, what will we do? What's your life? What mountain will you climb? What mountain are you climbing? What's the roar of your heart? Let it be for Cornerstone Church that we would give ourselves first to God and generously to the needs of others motivated by the grace of Jesus Christ's gift of himself to us.
What's the roar of your heart? Let it be, take my life, God, and let it be. Let's pray.